to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to another one of our programs on purpose-driven organizations dedicated to making a positive economic, social, and environmental impact on our world. We're having a series of conversations with people who are committed to making a difference by contributing their time, expertise, and experience to supporting these organizations and participating in the development of new solutions for achieving sustainability. The series is sponsored and supported by the Business Law Section of the American Bar Association, which has over 50,000 members and has just published the Corporate Social Responsibility Deskbook. Sales of the Deskbook have been gratifying, and these podcasts provide a great opportunity to provide more information within the legal community and to entrepreneurs, directors, executives, managers, investors, and others interested in some of the most important global topics of our time. I'm Alan Gutterman of Gutterman PC, working in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. And I'm your host for the series and one of the co-editors and authors of the desk book. Today, we will be hearing from Stan Smith, who co-wrote the chapter on product and customer responsibility in the desk book. We'll have Stan tell us more about himself during the conversation but for now, let me set the stage a bit by telling you that Stan is currently a Senior Vice President and America's General Counsel for Software AG, a global provider of software products and services. Stan's day-to-day responsibilities at Software AG include providing legal counsel on a broad range of global and regional issues, particularly in the areas of licensing, M&A, product development, employment, competition, corporate governance, CSR contract, ma- contract management, and litigation. Stan has lectured on legal topics relating to in-house practice and building relationships with outside legal service providers, and is a member of several professional committees and practice groups, including the ABA Business Law Section's Corporate Social Responsibility Law Committee. Stan, I want to thank you for taking the time to participate with us today. And uh, we appreciate, uh, I certainly appreciate all the work that you and did on the desk book and uh, the work that you're uh, willing to continue to do to educate people about uh, the topics that are uh, near and dear to your heart and important to all of our listeners. Uh, as I said, your chapter uh, that you worked on was on um, product and customer responsibility, and it, it, it covered two different areas taken together. Today, uh, we're going to focus on one big piece of that, um, which is privacy. And uh, privacy is certainly a uh, huge regulatory and compliance issue uh, for companies and their legal counselors around the world, uh, of course. Uh, I'm sitting here in California talking to you today, and California, in its wisdom, has has taken the lead in in setting um, uh, very stringent standards that 
that obviously are impacting businesses all over the United States, if, if not the world. So that's certainly something that uh, I think we're going to touch on a bit today. Um, but in addition to that, uh, privacy as a social responsibility issue, uh, privacy uh, is uh, uh, essentially, uh, you know, an inherent um, uh, human right uh, that is basic to individuals around the world. And uh, so it goes beyond the laws and regulations that, that, that you talk about and, and work with to to uh, to address the you know other concerns, societal concerns, and certainly privacy is a big issue in the news uh, almost every moment. So, um, with that background, once again, um, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. And and, and let's start with a, a real quick overview of um, of where you work and uh, who you work with and uh, what you do on a day to day basis. Okay, sure, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast, Alan. It's uh, it was a privilege uh, and a lot of fun to work on the book uh, with you and the other editors, and uh, uh, being able to do something like this is 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 also interesting, and uh, it's good to get the juices flowing and think about some of these um, questions that I know you're going to ask, and and uh, try and share some of that with your listeners. Uh, for me. Um, I was uh, early in my career practicing in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, and we were in a small firm that represented European companies that were trying to establish U.S. branch offices or subsidiaries. And in that role, uh, because of the size of the firm, I kind of ended up being a little bit of a business and transactional generalist, although I did pick up a familiarity with patent licensing for some of our from our European clients. And after working there for uh, several years, I ended up in another firm in the same area that specialized in commercial real estate transactions. But eventually, with my licensing background, I ended up working in-house as a lawyer for a GE business unit, which was in the electronic data interchange uh, marketplace. And then from there, and since 1998, I've been uh, at the rest in Virginia-based U.S. offices of Software AG, and as you mentioned earlier, that's the American subsidiary of a publicly traded uh, German software developer, Software AG. And in that role, for the last 13 years, I've been heading up the America's uh, legal operations covering North, Central, and South America. And, and just while we're talking about you know, corporate social responsibility and kind of involuntary and voluntary approaches, uh, when I came to Software AG, um, which was one of the first software companies in Europe, I was not that familiar with CSR. Uh, and as it happens, our founder, uh, Dr. Peter Schnell, after his retirement, established a foundation, which is now our company's largest single shareholder. And uh, his vision for that foundation was to give back to local communities, not only in Germany, but around the world in communities where Software AG is doing business. And currently the foundation is supporting research and initiatives in areas like education, uh, children, and disability care. So on a personal level, uh, you know, ending up here kind of also ended me ended up with me being involved more directly in a company that has an actual corporate social responsibility outlook. And uh, then, of course, being involved in the research project and working on the chapter in the book 
uh, also has really kind of, you know, brought my interest in this subject uh, into sharper focus the last year or so. Stan, thanks for the background. I think it's always interesting for our listeners to understand uh, how our guests uh, came to be where they are today and and, and some of the twists and turns at, that uh, led them to their interest in the topic and, and that sort of thing. So at this point, um, you know, there's so much to talk about with privacy. Let's get right to it and turn to some of the topics that uh, you covered in the book. Um, first off, uh, what kind of companies should be co- should be concerned with privacy laws? Well, that's a good question, Alan. I'm, I'm, from my perspective, um, and perspectives can be pretty individualized. Um, I think it's almost everyone. I know that with the onset of GPR, GDPR, excuse me, the Global Data Protection Regulation from the EU, we had some customers um, in our uh, uh, in the, that we sell to in the Americas who were adamant that they were not subject to GDPR. And what we found, however, was that the the kind of safe harbors that maybe counsel at some of those companies expected to exist um, maybe weren't as as deep as they thought they were. Um, to use a well-worn cliche, you know, we're kind of all operating in a truly global economy. And if I could use an internal example, I remember one time speaking last year with one of our own sales team members who, as you can imagine, was interested in trying to fast track a transaction for the end of that particular quarter or month and was a little afraid that if we engaged with the customer on a GDPR style data processing agreement in addition to the contract we were negotiating that it would take too long we'd get bogged down and maybe we would miss the the deadline that his manager had set for him Uh, and this was for a large university in the southwest what was interesting was that he was overlooking a couple of things. One, the university had international students, and some of them are from the EU. And two, the university's own website advertised its intention to comply as fully as possible with GDPR, at least as much as a U.S.-located organization could do that. Now, my guess is they probably did that to try and make their EU visiting students feel better about how they were handling their private information. Um, So anyway, we got through that and we were able, because of the university's focus on it, to get through the data processing agreement part of that without too much difficulty. Um, So, you know, sometimes in my example, even, even customers that our salespeople thought wouldn't have any interest or wouldn't be covered by GDPR actually were. You know, there are some federal government businesses that we, agencies that we do business with, and obviously some of them are not going to align with GDPR. Uh, and there's some other organizations you might be able to think of. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of customers we have, uh, you know, one that's in the, the grocery business, another that's very small, uh, regional bank, you know, that might not have to be concerned with GDPR. But, you know, if we start to expand away from GDPR and start to look out to things like the new or relatively new California Consumer Protection Act, um, Consumer Privacy Act, uh, you know, you start to see that the ability to not have to deal with these privacy issues uh, is starting to become more and more remote. 
so my answer, I think, is really that it's almost everybody. And, and even if it doesn't apply to you, you really have to be familiar with it anyway because your suppliers or vendors could have requirements that uh, they want you to help them meet. And so it's it's good for everybody who's in a corporate or a law firm setting to really be familiar with these things. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, exactly what types of personal data are covered by the new legal frameworks like GDPR and, and the California law? Well, there are a lot of similarities uh, between the two frameworks. Um, if you wanted to kind of get granular and break it down a little bit, and I won't you know, do a deep dive into any of that here, but just at a high level, GDPR is really focused on what they call personal data, and that's defined as any information that's relating to an identified or identifiable natural person. And GDPR also refers to natural persons as data subjects. So under the GDPR, uh, a data subject or an identifiable natural person is someone who can be identified, whether it's direct or indirect, from some sort of personal identifier. That could be anything from like a name or identification number, or it could even be like location data from some sort of geocaching, um, online identifier like a cookie, or even based on one or more factors that could be specific to that person's physical, physiological, genetic, mental, economic, cultural, or social identity. So there's a lot of things there that GDPR is concerned with. Uh, CCPA is not altogether different, but they define personal information as information that identifies, relates to, describes, is capable of being associated with, or could reasonably be linked directly and indirectly with a particular consumer or household. Um, one difference there is that the GDPR covers publicly available data also, uh, so that if a controller or a processor and those are defined terms under the GDPR, is, has collected or is processing personal data from a publicly available source, they still could be subject to the requirements of the GDPR. Uh, the California law, on the other hand, does not cover publicly available information, which is information that's lawfully made available from federal, state, or local government records, at least if that data is used for a purpose that's compatible with the purpose for which the data is maintained and made available in the government records. So that could be, you know, if I'm trying to comply with, um, you know, some sort of employment, uh, you know, or workers' compensation information gathering exercise, and I'm, and I'm using that kind of information for that purpose, that's allowed. But uh, if I gather it and then somehow, you know, lose control of it or use it for another purpose, that could also be a problem under CCPA, just as it would have been in a different situation under GDPR if that information was collected in Europe. Mm -hmm. The uh, penalties, uh, as far as I'm able to tell, and, uh, you know, reading it as a as a more generalist transactional lawyer, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that a little more in, in a minute, uh, uh, are, are quite striking and quite shocking uh, on the face of it. Uh, just a, a legal exposure, uh, in theory, if not in practice, exists for companies under these new rules. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, and um, that's been one of the areas of focus that we've been uh, heavily involved in 
in um, you know we we support the revenue stream for our company and that could be you know license contracts or contracts where we do consulting work relating to our, our the software that we sell or it could be um, education services that we provide for people to better use the software that we sell or it could even be uh, maintenance or customer support contracts that we sell um, you know the issue of of exposure to these things has come up and there's really there's really not a market that i've i've discovered yet uh, or a, or a sort of a uh, a general consensus on on where to end up in those negotiations but the reason why uh, people are so concerned with it as you mentioned at the top of this question was that when the gdpr came out uh, people you know almost had an eye popping experience understanding what gdpr uh, provides for there can be penalty ceilings uh, of two percent of global revenue or ten million dollars whichever is more or four percent of global revenue or 20 million excuse me i said dollars but i meant euros whichever is higher now those penalty ceilings really kind of depend on the circumstances of the violation with certain types of violations being viewed as worse than others uh, my own sense of, of what GDPR is trying to get to is that uh, data subjects, uh, fundamental rights of individual uh, privacy uh, with regard to their personally identifiable information, uh, if that is negligently or blatantly uh, abused somehow, that would be the area where you would see the higher the higher penalty. It could also be you know, where there's a sort of a general or a catastrophic loss of that kind of information across a bunch of different data subjects. Um, but in any case, you know, we're roughly about a billion dollar a year company. So even at the 2% or 10 million euro level, you're talking about pretty significant amounts of liability that on a contract by contract basis could add up quickly. So um, the CCPA is is slightly different in how it approaches it, but if you do the math, the numbers on those types of of uh, violations could also be pretty significant. Um, the The state of California uh, has invested the Attorney General of California with the right to bring uh, actions against violators, and the they've got a slightly different framework. They have a per violation. Uh, fine of $2,500 uh, for each, I'll call it a regular violation, which is distinct from $7,500 for each what they call intentional violation. And then beyond that, you've got the possibility of private rights of action, um, you know, where you could have a $750 uh, per instance uh, charge that uh, a citizen could invoke in trying to bring a private claim. Uh, under CCPA, so the monetary amounts could could be astronomical. Um, we haven't seen astronomical amounts so far, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions. Um, but uh, you know that's clearly a worry for 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 businesses and for law firms representing those businesses uh, because mm -hmm. you don't want to be. Uh, found by a data protection authority inside the EU to be in that, you know, 2% or 10 million euro or 4%, 20 million euro framework. That's that you don't want to be near that ceiling if you can avoid it. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to combine uh, a series of, of, of things I wanted to ask you about into, you know, try and boil them down, but they're related. Uh, one, uh, although I'll make the editorial comment that I would expect for someone, particularly someone in, in your position, you know, as a senior legal officer in, in this type of situation, uh, uh, this creates an abundance of additional stress in terms of, uh, uh, you know, your 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 position in, in terms of assisting with risk management and, you know, advising other executives and managers and directors and everything. I want to ask you about that in a second, but the, before I do that, you know, uh, and and again, I'm I'm in California, and and I know in California, uh, from a regulatory perspective. Uh, the Attorney General's office sometimes likes to march to its own drummer and uh, in, in, in terms of enforcement and interpretation and that sort of thing. So there, there probably is the, the possibility that, that while uh, other enforcement groups, well, I guess you could say that about the EU as well, uh, uh, that, that, you know, the speed and intensity of enforcement, and I, I want to ask you about generally how the laws are being enforced so far, may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and that companies uh, want to be sure that they don't become one of the test cases for uh, EU or California regulators on a, on a, on a particular matter. So um, what's your sense, Dan, about um, the pace of enforcement at this point and, and, and also the chances for sort of federal preemption here in the United States about it, although there's Clearly, it's difficult to see the government agreeing on much of anything these days for a while. But but how's how's that all come together in terms of, of enforcement trends and preemption in in your mind? Well, sure. I mean, you're right when you mention that it's kind of an additional stressor. And uh, just for our own part, what we've tried to do is focus on the facts. Try not to be overly fearful about it. Really engage in kind of mutual education. So if I'm engaged with the business about, you know, how we deal with a request from a customer or how we deal with a negotiation, I'm trying to let them know as much as I can without, you know, overspending it, you know, what the realities of these new legal frameworks are. And I'm also trying to get information back from them just about, you know, the normal types of things you would you would think about, you know, what's the risk tolerance, what kind of business calls, what might we be willing to make, but also wanting to make sure that with regard to a particular product or a particular service that, you know, we have really looked at that and we've we've done the homework in terms of making sure that we can try and make the product as secure and as as customer friendly uh, and as usable as the customer needs it to be. Uh, so we've done some things in that area that are really more um, kind of outside of the area of privacy and CSR per se, but kind of relate to that in the sense of, you know, cybersecurity and things like that in terms of, you know, getting ISO certifications and trying to make sure that we've got uh, a certifiable story to tell about the ability of the products to work the way we say they do. Now, when it comes to enforcement, you know, we're a software company that makes products that sit on uh, servers or in the cloud for our customers that they may use with uh, applications of their own design or they may use with 
uh, information tools that they've gotten from other vendors. We're not your classic kind of big social media conglomerate that is harvesting or, you know, mining uh, personal information uh, in ways that you might think of uh, some companies like Facebook or, or Google or things like that. So um, we're maybe a little in a little bit different profile in terms of what a regular what excuse me what a regulator might be looking at now but there has been enforcement you know the gdpr came online in may of 2018 and there was a little bit of a lag there uh while you know people tried to comply and then while uh you know customers or regulators looked to see if there were problems and then the problems were investigated and then you know enforcement action came online but we do know that uh you know in 2019 there was enforcement uh for example there was a uh, a fine levied by the portuguese data protection authority against a hospital in country in the amount of 400,000 euros on a larger scale the french data protection authority which is cnil imposed a 50 million euro fine on Google. Uh, they based that on their own findings that Google had breached GDPR by not providing enough transparency, uh, not giving adequate information about its data processing activities, and also not obtaining valid consents regarding personalized advertising. Um, you know, probably everybody's heard about the, the data privacy settlement uh, in the U.S. that um, that Facebook entered into with the FTC, um, which is a $5 billion settlement, largely arising out of the kind of infamous Cambridge Analytics, Analytica uh, election interference uh, social media activity that took place on Facebook, um, which might be the right segue here to talk a little bit about you know, federal activity, federal preemption. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you get the question, and I know you and I talked about it in preparing for the podcast, you know, what what is the federal approach to privacy? Is there one? Uh, sometimes people mistake that because Congress is right now trying to put together or to at least explore whether it's possible to come up with a comprehensive federal data privacy law, that there isn't any federal activity in this space and we discuss in our chapter in the book a little bit that there actually is already quite a bit of federal law on the books the federal trade commission uh, enforces uh section five of the federal uh federal trade commission act which uh, prevents companies from engaging basically in unfair activity uh to the detriment of consumers uh, I think the, the language is unfair or deceptive acts or practices interaffecting commerce. So that's the area where uh, the FTC settlement with Facebook came into play because they invoked that with regard to the Cambridge Analytica activity. And I think there was also uh, some allegations of violations of a prior FTC commission order against Facebook from 2012 but there's also you know online protection for children that's the children's online privacy protection act or coppa uh, there's a fair credit reporting act that the ftc enforces there's the graham leach bliley act uh, which requires financial institutions to safeguard the security and confidentiality of customer information that they collect so there's a lot that the federal government can do um, you know, with regard to preemption, 
it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, there was a lot of activity in Congress last year uh, on this. Uh, it, it seemed like the White House and probably some of the companies in Silicon Valley were interested in this becoming a re reality. Probably from the business side, they're interested in just having a single framework which, to your point or to your question, if there was a preemption provided for, would then allow them to sort of focus on complying with one, at least national regime here, in addition to whatever else they had to do in other places in the world. Um, the, the legislative activity got a little bogged down uh, at the end of last year. The way I understand it is that there are multiple bills which were, you know, put forward on this topic, at least by different members of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. And there's differences, though, in approach uh, across party lines on, on some of the key factors. So you mentioned preemption. You know, my own take on that is Republicans favor it. Democrats on the committee don't seem to. Uh, private rights of action, Republicans disfavor that. Seems like the Democrats on the committee would, would be interested in that. And then agency authority. Um, Republicans seem to want that to be under existing FTC authority. I guess that's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know approach. Democrats seem to want uh, there to be a new bureau inside the FTC and then have some sort of joint authority with state's attorney general. So, um, Preemption, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. Um, uh, and there's a bipartisan House draft, I think, as well. But, um, you know, there's no – doesn't seem like there's any coalescing of these approaches into kind of one unified bill that, uh, you know, the House or Senate uh, currently, you know, would would get to approval. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um Boy, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things, as I said, in this in this area that that, that we could spend a lot of time on. Um, we're we're running down on our time, so what I'm going to do is 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 try and finish up with with uh, maybe maybe two questions which which combine uh, some some broader issues. Um, one one to begin with, sort of an editorial comment, because uh, we've already touched on. Uh, some of the issues that transactional lawyers and in-house counsel uh, need to be mindful of now in, in, in this area. I, I know certainly in the, in the law firm area, with smaller law firms, uh, uh, they've got to find people who are interested in becoming more specialized in, in this area. It's no longer something that's on the margin, has to be uh, you know, quite a focus, especially in the, in the vein of intellectual property or anything else like that. Uh, the other thing, you know, recently I had the experience of uh, working on an M&A deal, which I was representing a smaller company uh, that happened to collect a substantial amount of data through its business model that was being acquired by a large public company. And I will say that I was struck by the, the level and intensity of, of due diligence and rep and warranty covenants relating to privacy um, that was quite shocking. And I've been, I, I've been doing uh, these deals for, for 40 years. And, uh, and uh, this is clearly an area that in an M&A transaction, 
uh, is it, quite intense, and and I suspect in many cases can scuttle deals. Um, and, and in areas where a smaller company may not have had the resources to pay attention um, to compliance up until the time when they, they had a bidder who was interested in buying them. So um, it, it, it's clearly, uh, you know, uh, something that is moving forward quite quickly. My, my, two, my two sort of remaining questions, Dan, that you can address together or separately or what have you is, is some of your thoughts on best practices to mitigate privacy risks, particularly sitting from your from your seat as as a senior um, legal executive, and and also in terms of what you find yourself counseling your directors and uh, CEO and, and 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 sort of thing in this area. And finally, to finish up, once you've done that, to just let me know. What do you think the next big thing in this area will be and, and, and what it's going to look like over the next five, eight, ten years as we go out? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll try, and I'll try and do it quick because I know we're running close to the end of our time. I think your comment about M&A is, is well-founded. I mean, that's been our experience as well. Um, you definitely see that as a growing issue for due diligence on the buyer side. And probably, you know, you can link that to the onset of things like GDPR and CCPA. Um, I think in terms of practical approaches uh, or best practices, a couple of quick takes on that um, would be, one, um, you know, if you don't really know where to start, there's there, there's at least a couple of places that should be available to almost everybody that you could turn. Um, some of the folks on the phone or listening on the podcast, I guess I should say, would would be familiar with NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They've got a lot of documents on their website uh, that they've published. A good one to check out uh, is they have a uh, NIST privacy framework. It's a discussion draft, but it has an Appendix D about privacy practices that I've looked at, and I think it could be a pretty useful as a baseline, you know, for mapping out our approach or at least cross-checking a current approach to see what what that particular standards body or that institute, you know would say about how you should set up. That doesn't mean you have to do it that way. It's by no means a regulation or a law, but it's a good place to go for a sanity check. Another thing that uh, council could consider is that most of us will have some sort of insurance coverage. Um, some, some companies will have more comprehensive cover than others, but everybody's got a, a, a carrier or an, a, a broker that they can probably reach out to and ask for assistance in in two areas. One, understanding kind of the 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 coverage that you have in the privacy or the cybersecurity area. And two, if there's any training, it could be free. In some cases, it could be uh, it could be cost based, but reasonable in other situations that you could get from your carrier, from your broker, uh, to help you and your business clients better understand this area. Um, as far as you know, advising boards and things like that. I mean, you know, you and I just talked about M and A, and that's obviously something that a that a board would be interested in if there was a transaction coming online. They'd want to focus on, you know, what the results of the due diligence, what the report out from that area of the due diligence was. Um, but more and more, you know, you have to expect that boards are probably um, looking to discharge their fiduciary duties. 
by understanding, you know, how the company's management is responding to these new laws, you know, what sort of impact those things have on supplier and partner management programs, um, you know, risk beyond just the, uh, the, the, the GDPR and CCPA enforcement risks. I mean, um, there are other things going on, uh, you know, in the private right of action area. Uh, there's a privacy lawyer out of Chicago named Jay Edelman who recently uh, secured a big um, uh, settlement uh, that they're trying to get court approval for against Facebook for violation of Illinois' biometric data statute. So there's a lot of things going on that if you were on a board, you'd want to pull your management or your general counsel about just to make sure that they're looking into those things and able to answer questions that the board might have. And, you know, kind of taking it back to what we were talking about at the top, just in terms of the CSR aspect of this, we talked a bit during the call about, you know, involuntary aspects of, of privacy regulation, but uh, there's other ways for the company uh, to to uh, distance itself from its competition if it's willing to invest in and look at voluntary ways of engaging uh, in privacy protection for its customers. And, uh, you know, that might be something for a board to look at, too. You know, what's the strategy? What is our competitive positioning? Because if it's done right, uh, it could be a marketplace differentiator for the company, and that could be attractive to a board. And it could also really assist management by enhancing employee engagement. Um, you know, we've all heard stories of companies like, you know, Patagonia or Starbucks or Tom's that are all, all in on corporate social responsibility. And you have to believe that part of the part of the quid pro quo there, part of what they're trying to do, in addition to kind of walking the talk, is also really, you know, doubling down and making sure that their employees and their customers are engaged in, and realize that, uh, you know, they're a special kind of company and that uh, there's something going on there that they either want to continue to be a part of as a customer or, you know, that really gets the the employee engagement levels higher inside the company, which helps productivity and those sorts of things. Um, as far as the next big thing, um, it'll be really interesting. I mean, I think we all kind of expect that if there's any kind of activity on the on the federal front, that would be kind of a it could be a game changer. It certainly would be something we'd all want to analyze as as much as we've analyzed GDPR and CCPA. Um, whether it's more or less likely that that takes place in an election year, somebody who's more astute in the political area or lobbying would probably be able to speak to that better than I could. But uh, I think that's probably the most logical next big thing to look for is either is either the the passing of a federal law in this area which might preempt to your point earlier some of the things that are already going on or if the federal law doesn't materialize what does that mean in terms of the proliferation of other state laws where where legislatures come along and say well if the feds aren't going to do something. We're going to do something similar to what Colorado or California or Illinois have done. So that I think is probably the next big thing to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, privacy is, is, has, has come upon us uh, in a big way over the last few decades and it's with us to stay and with us going forward. So um, 
Stan, I want to thank you again for participating. And, of course, uh, thank all the listeners out there today for joining our podcast. I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, I hope you'll join me for other programs in the series, and you can find information about the series and all of my guests and the desk book, as well as resources on series topics provided by contributors at my website, alangutterman.com. If you have questions for me or any of our guests, send me an email at alangutterman at gmail.com. So long for now, and I hope to be talking to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.